The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Natural Beauty edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon, joined as ever by Anna Shemansky and Jordan Weissman. Did I say as ever? Yeah, what's up? I don't know how long this team is going to stay together. Are you you quitting on me? I'm, I quit's such a strong word. That's such, (laughs) is quitting the word we want to, I, we're consciously uncoupling. In (laughs) economics, the, um, the quit rate is always a good sign of economic health. If people are quitting a lot of jobs, then that means the economy is, is, Ticking along nicely. So, are you saying that Slate Money is is economically healthy? It's it's very healthy. I I am confident the show is in good hands, and I can move he, on he to said some other. At yeah, <laughs> and I can move on to other potential projects without worrying about the direction that Felix and Anna are going to take it. We're, we're gonna we're gonna we can. Oh my God! Without Jordan, what can we do with this, <laughs> Anna? Okay, so guys, we need two things from you actually three things from you this is a big preamble i guess this week i don't know what the three things are going to be i actually i have no (laughs) idea what felix is about to ask you guys for so this is going to be a surprise to me as much as as it is to you the the first thing we need from you is send in all of your questions for jordan weissman because this is your last and possibly only chance to ask questions of jordan weissman um we will put a phone number in the show notes or just email us on slatemoney at slate.com. Uh, long-standing resident millennial will be here to answer all of your questions, which only he can answer. So this is going to be, Jordan's swan song is going to be something of the Jordan show. Send in your questions. We'll see if he can answer them. Number two, now that like Anna and I are freed of Jordan, yep. we need your advice on where to take this thing and just how um, wonky we should yes. go. And like, you know, how much time should we spend on credit default swap contango or something like that? The answer is a lot. And actually, Dan Schrader can give you the phone number. 929-266-8195. Call that number and leave a voicemail. If you want to say goodbye to Jordan Weissman in person, there is a way you can do that on <laughs> Pi Day. Because we have just received word from the public theater that they have released a new tranche of tickets to the low road on 314 Pi Day. If you use the code MONEY on the public theater website, then you can get tickets for 30 bucks, which is super cheap. And we are all going to be there. And we have booked out a space in the library bar afterwards. And so once we have all seen the play, you can buy Jordan a drink. Yeah. Yeah, you can buy me all the drinks. <laughs> maybe Manhattan, maybe an old fashioned. Yeah, no, if you try to, but I'm not drinking a fucking old fashioned. <laughs> and anyone who wants to buy Jordan an old fashioned is welcome to do that on, on March 14 at the library bar. Um, but yes, this show is obviously all going to all going to be about the Seychelles because it's the biggest news of the oh, week. It really God. is. <laughs> is, it, is that how it's pronounced? I've always, in my head, I've always had it as like Seychelles, but that's, I've never actually heard it pronounced that's that wrong. Long. That's very <laughs> wrong. <laughs> I like Seychelles. It sounds like Seychelles sounds like some sort of Greek monster. Like that, that's, I, I, I liked, I liked thinking no, of it, it as, it is not Seychelles. No. It's Seychelles. Seychelles. Seychelles um, sounds We're going to more... talk about the Seychelles because there's an awesome Seychelles story this week. Okay. Um, we are going to talk, we have talked a little bit about Gerson Lehman and expert networks before. Uh, we're going to talk about them again because there are my fitty reasons why they're back. <laughs> is, that, is that an adjective? My, my fitty two. My fitty two. Um, This will all become clear in part three, but part one obviously has to be... The trade war? (laughs) The trade war. Trade war. (laughs) Jordan is a sort of Trump whisperer as far as this show is concerned. I'm not sure what we're going to be able to do without you, but correct me if I'm wrong. Basically, he has... Trump has this very kind of photo op meeting with a bunch of steel executives at the White House. And then he has like a photo call at the end of it and blurts out in the middle of the photo call, yeah, we're going to have 25% tariffs on steel and 10% on aluminum, as you guys call it. And then 
all hell breaks loose. Yeah, I mean, that that's a pretty decent summary. So the background to this is just really convoluted and says so much about the current state of the White House and the U.S. government. But, you know, Donald Trump campaigned hard on trade protectionism. You know, he was going to slap it down big border taxes on you know, everybody and their sister to keep foreign made goods from coming into the country and bring back smokestacks in the Midwest and yada, yada, yada. Um, and there's, you know, he he then entered office and there was sort of this tension, right, between the two halves of his administration. You had on the one side, the actual trade protectionists that he, you know, brought into his fold. And that included guys like, you know, our old favorite Wilbur Ross, who made his fortune off of steel partly. Um, also, the uh, U.S. trade representative, Robert Lighthizer, who was a steel lobbyist who was very in favor of uh, tariffs. And then on the other side... And, and of course, Steve Bannon. And Steve Bannon. Well, well, he was like kind of off doing God knows what. But yeah, he was there. You and know, Navarro. Yeah, exactly. And then also Peter Navarro, the you know anti-China zealot who was his trade advisor, essentially. Um, and then on the other side, you had the free traders. You had the Goldman Sachs guys like Gary Cohn and Steve Mnuchin. And so there's been this jockeying this whole time for between the two sides try, you know, with one group trying to urge Trump to, yes, slap down tariffs. And then the other group saying, no, 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 no. Look how great the stock market is doing. It's doing great. So in February, the Commerce Department, headed by Wilbur Ross, uh, came out with this report saying you should put down a 24% tariff on on all foreign steel for national security reasons. Uh, uh, and how, okay, the, f- the first obvious question which yeah. I need to ask is, in what conceivable way, shape, or form is this a national security issue? So the U.S., uses steel in things like guns guns and military equipment and you know big infrastructure projects and theoretically if we were if our steel capacity were to be completely diminished and disappear uh and we went to war we would be in some kind of trouble Um, wait on the grounds that like Canada would stop exporting. I mean, right. Steel listen, listen. I like. Are we going to war with Canada? Like, like I, I keep on wondering that we will. I, I have not read all 262 pages of this report. It's actually on my to-do list. But like, <laughs> I mean, like, is it flimsy as fuck? Yeah, it's flimsy as fuck. Like, but this is. So but why are they using this? Because reason? there are a few. Basically, it's the it's the biggest opening that they can. It bureaucratically, it's it's a pretty easy way to do it. Um, it, the president has a lot of latitude using this thing called a Section 232 investigation. Okay, so they're not but, actually saying that they're doing it for national security reasons. They're just saying they're using well, the national security as a pretense. pretense. But yeah. then, but the the other part of it, and this comes, and and this actually opens up all sorts of huge issues, is that the World Trade Organization rules do allow tariffs and and protectionist uh, actions for national security purposes. Um, but no one has really tested what that means, and so. It's Trump is kind of trying to, you know, take this loophole and just, you know, burst it wide open, just drive a truck through it, essentially. So, I mean, truck politically, with- it's, it's yeah. I think, reasonably clear what's going on here. Um, the White House this week is even more chaotic than it normally is with Hope Hicks leaving and Jared Kushner losing his job or the ability to do his job. Yeah. And um some kind of like thermonuclear level war between the president and his own justice department. Um, But so with all of that going, with all of that chaos going on, you can kind of see this sort of atavistic desire that Trump has to go back to the campaign trail and rile up his base and say, yeah, tariffs. Well, yeah, that's definitely part of it. There's, I mean, there are a a few other things that were going on too. Um, One is that when you, so the commerce put out this report saying, hey, let's do some tariffs. Let's, let's, let's get going with this. And technically I think the president has like 90 days after that to, to respond and make the decision. So there was some sort of timeline here Um, at the same, at Also, while that was going on, um, Rob Porter, you know, you remember him as the guy who got in trouble for beating his, you know, his ex-wife. He was actually, the one good thing about him was he was an anti-tariff guy. He was, he was sort of um, running point on this issue. He was sort of controlling the paper flow to Trump um, when it came to trade, apparently. And so when Rob Porter disappeared, all of a sudden that gave an opening for the protectionists to swoop in and kind of get Trump to finally act. Um, so they literally organized this this uh, meeting, this photo op that was set for yesterday, and 
were planning to make the big announcement and didn't tell like half the administration. They didn't tell the free traders who find out, who found out at the last minute. And so that led to this bizarre rollout where all of a sudden Trump just blurted out what was going to happen. And no one's quite sure how it's going to be implemented exactly because they haven't even finished the damn legal review. And yeah. There is still a chance that it won't happen. This could be the trans ban in the military all over again. So some people have said that. I've, I've seen a few comments on those lines. And, and here's why I don't think that's the case, is that the trans ban in the military, or the military did not really want to implement the trans ban. That's what's become clear. Is like they saw the tweet and they didn't get an official order and no one was really you know raring to go on it. So they just kind of let it die. Um, whereas in this case... You have the Commerce Department and you have the trade representative really pushing for tariffs. And the only person they have to convince is Donald Trump to get this done. They just need to get his signatures on the paper. So you don't need to even do a big photo op where everyone hears about it ahead of time. You just need to get him to sign the damn sheet. And there's no one really controlling anything in the White House. So it seems conceivable that they could force this through or likely at this point, given that he's announced it now and it would look bad if he backed off. Right. But I'm wondering if he announces this and all of a sudden he has so many people from different industries because so many manufacturing industries are going to be negatively affected by this. Yeah. If he starts to get all of that feedback, he could potentially keep the tariffs, but water them down so much with carve outs that they're essentially meaningless. He could. Um, I mean, so the, the, yeah. the, the reason I find that, again, I'm a little skeptical is that. All of the point people on trade in the administration are for this. Mm -hmm. All the people with any trade expertise. I mean, you could argue that some of the career staffers probably in, at Commerce, for instance, are probably, you know, feeling queasy about all this. Um, but it's not like the U.S. trade rep is going to sit down and say, how can we water this down to please Steve Mnuchin or please GM? He's going to be saying, fuck you. I want my tariffs. So, so like, so. let's be clear about the... Uh Losers and losers here. Um, yeah. I mean, I, there, there may or may not be a couple. I mean, I can't even name any American steel companies. It's just, it seems like such a tiny point. Newcore, US Steel. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're big. They're big. <laughs> no, there, there, are, there are a few of them. But but the, the big picture here is that, firstly, anybody who makes anything out of metal, basically, is, is going to see their prices rise. And that's obviously car manufacturers, mm -hmm. soda cans, and washing yeah. machines. Aluminum is really the funny part of mm -hmm. this. The fact that aluminum is being protected for national security purposes <laughs> is like, that's the one that I'm like, we wait, need to protect those beer cans like, for that, our troops. That's where this really goes from just like kind of harebrained to like pure troll. Like, right? <laughs> like, but then the, the bigger issue, for, I mean, and that's going to cause prices to rise for consumers. Um, but the bigger issue for me is NAFTA and supply chains because I, th I feel like the White House is living in some kind of 1950s world where manufacturers import a bunch of raw materials and then make stuff out of raw materials. And that's not the world we live in. We live in a world of supply chains where various bits of various different cars, you know, if you're building a car, those bits in the car, the various different parts which make up the car, have crossed the border between Mexico and the US or between Canada and the US like 30,000 times before you finally get a car. Oh, yeah. And, and I mean, if you stop and think about this for a minute, you can easily see how this would push jobs out of the US into Mexico and Canada. Oh, you're going to slap. So the US has tariffs on steel. Steel's more expensive here. Okay, make the damn engine in Mexico, make the engine in Canada, and then bring it over like you do anyway. And There's, does it not right. have tariffs on it if you're building, if you're importing an engine rather than a piece of steel? Uh, yeah, I mean, once you've made the, the part, that's yeah, no that, longer, that's no longer an issue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that, huh. that's a way around it. So you're going to, I mean, there are all sorts of things you can you could do to get around this. Um, and, you know, I mean, he had this tweet this morning, um, it's like 5 a.m. after he got done ranting about Alec Baldwin, where he said, when you're losing billions of dollars, trade wars are easy and easy to win and good. Right. Like it was very Twitter. Slides. It's like, actually, this is extremely good. Um, and he's like, because if you stop trading, if so, he also said, if someone gets cute and stops trading, then it, it's good for us if we're losing billions with them. And it's just like, well, well, no, because <laughs> that 
fuck that, that just messes with everything. All right. the you know, are the the our farmers. Yeah, the yeah. supply like your farmers are, suddenly can't sell their sorghum in China. That's something that they've been trying to hit with tariffs. Uh, you know, our supply chains all over the world get scrambled. There are all sorts of losers. It's not it's not easy. It's the, not, the the fact that the president of the United States has no conception of gains from trade. Yeah, or like probably has never even heard of Ricardo. I mean, that's fine if you've not heard of Ricardo, but like. If you haven't heard of Ricardo, you should at least listen to the people in your administration who have. Really, what is the upshot? What are they exactly expecting to happen? I don't know exactly. I, because it's hard to separate the, it's hard for me to get over the fact that both Ross and Lighthizer are industry guys. And maybe this is just them wanting to help steal. Like, like maybe that's just what it comes down to. And you know, or maybe there's some bigger conceptual uh, protectionist agenda going on here, and this is just a first step in the war. But it, it's hard for me to sort of uh, to to figure out how much of this is kind of crony capitalism and how much of it is, is a grand plan. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe Trump's going. You know, one thing I'm worried about is that Trump really does want a trade war where he gets. China or Europe to retaliate, and that gives him an excuse to retaliate more. And all of a sudden, you see tariffs just sort of stacking up on everything. Maybe that's what he wants to do. So, that's like the worst case scenario. Politically speaking, yeah, um, a bunch of Republicans came out quite strongly against this because it violates all manner of free trade orthodoxy. What is where? Where does the Democratic Party stand on this? You know, I have not actually been tracking the Democratic response that closely. Um, I'm sure there are some people who are just going to be like, this is a terrible idea. And there might be a few uh, kind of Rust Belt state Democrats who I think are for- Brown actually Did came out, out in favor, favor of it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, the, the tricky thing about tariffs, let me let me say I, I sell, I'm ranting and raving about this particular steel tariff is they're not always a bad idea. There are specific circumstances where if you were trying to combat some sort of unfair trade practice like dumping, yes, a tariff works. And last in, in 2016, Obama slapped a big tariff on Chinese steel specifically um, because he, you know, he said that they were essentially selling it below cost in the US to deal with their overcapacity issue. And while there has been some tit for tat there, it seems like it worked out pretty well. It doesn't seem like it's you know brought on catastrophe. What's really worrisome about this is Trump seems to be picking a fight with the entire goddamn world. And with Canada. Yeah, with Canada. And so the, the more- the, like, just to be clear, China yeah. is not the biggest source of US steel imports. Canada and, uh, is yeah. the biggest source of US steel imports. Of all the countries to piss off, why would you choose well, Canada? Part of the question part of what the Trump people would say is that, well, we've we've clamped down on Chinese imports, but really Chinese imports are being laundered through other countries. Right. And, and how it, how true that is, I, I don't personally I haven't tracked that. But I I wouldn't say what is still happening, and we all know this, is that there is still overcapacity in China. It's not just in China. There's overcapacity in other places as well. But that is still depressing the global price of steel. Yes. Right. Because, I mean, that's just basic supply and demand. If you have overcapacity, then that means prices go down. And maybe you can create this little island of higher prices in the U.S., but it's not clear that that really benefits at, at you what because, cost because right. having cheap inputs is normally a good thing for manufacturing yeah I- exactly and again to me it just it comes back to is steel worth a, a fight with all of our trade partners right is it, is it worth it you know i mean the european union is going to strike back if they are targeted they they did this when bush did steel tariffs they basically sat down and said you know what if you're going to try and keep Germany from exporting steel, uh, we're going to put tariffs on your orange juice. So it hurts you in your swing state of well, Florida. And also they went to the WTO and essentially yeah. got us to overturn them. And that yeah. could happen. Yeah, I mean, that could happen again. I mean, there's there they we are we are picking a battle with so many people over this one industry, which is important and has had problems. I mean, like you said, overcapacity has been an issue, but priorities. Priorities, man. <laughs> Steel versus the entire, entire global you know, economy. Or trade, yeah, like the, all of how trade works. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
Okay, enough politics. Yeah. Anna, pick it up, take it away. Um, this is my favorite story. This is your favorite story. It really we, are, is. we are going to love this story so much. Seychelles, what happened? Okay. So, Seychelles, if you don't know, is a <laughs> archipelago in the Indian Ocean off the coast of uh, East Africa. And they are now setting aside a huge marine territory because their overall territory is like 99% ocean. And 30% of that is now going to be set aside as protected land that cannot be used for commercial fishing, oil exploration, development of any kind. And why are they doing this? Well, because it's part of this debt for nature swap. I Wait. Did you just say debt for nature swap? Yes, because debt because for I mean, I would. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that 99 percent of the people listening to Slate Money have never heard of a debt for nature swap. Debt for nature swaps is my favorite thing in the world, but even I only know one other one. So okay, so for, what is a debt for nature swap? So traditionally, when we've had debt for nature swaps, it's been the U.S. government will forgive a small portion of debt normally in frankly latin america usually and in exchange for that the country will set aside a certain amount of land that they won't use for development so it's essentially exactly what it sounds like they get a little bit of debt relief and then nature is preserved so basically bolivia borrows a bunch of money from america bolivia gets into fiscal problems america says you know what you don't need to pay that money back, but in return for that, we want you to carve out a nature reserve. Yes, and this really is much more about nature than it is about debt. When you're talking about debt for nature swaps, it is almost always a very, very small portion of the debt. And it's frankly usually after there's been some type of a restructuring. It's really about helping to incentivize countries to to preserve natural environments and also to Understand that for a lot of developing countries, you have to consider your need to grow and balance that with your need to protect the environment. And this is just helping them do that. And this is a similar case. This is Seychelles sovereign debt. Yes. Although I just want to point out Seychelles is not a poor country. It, in fact, is not even a mid-income country, is a high-income country. Is it really? But it's, yes. only, it's like 84,000 people and all they 94, have 94,000 people. And it's all tourism. They have the highest GDP per capita in all of Africa. This is not what you normally think of when you think of debt for nature swaps. Interesting. So tell us tell us how much debt was involved here and how and also is this a government because oh, I feel like yes, the I, nature concern. Yes, I will explain. Actually the mechanism of how this works is in my mind really fascinating and that's actually why this one is interesting because it's different than most debt for nature swaps because this one actually involves social impact capital. Okay. It's not just debt forgiveness. It's not, and it's it's not just what we what we debt geeks would call Paris Club debt. Yes. It's not, it's not countries who lent the money. It's actually the private sector. Um, well, a mix, but <laughs> so okay. So what's happening here is that NatureVest, which is part of the Nature Conservancy, was able to raise about close to twenty two million dollars in grants and loans from private capital, including Leonardo DiCaprio. Apparently. And so they took this money and they gave it to a conservation trust that had been created in the Seychelles. Now, that trust then loans the money to the government. The government then uses that money to buy back their debt, the some foreign debt that they have outstanding, about $30 million in debt because they're buying it at a discount. Okay. Now, the government has to pay back that loan that to the trust, but the proceeds that are going back to the trust are used for three things. One, they're used to pay back the people who lent the money. They're used to pay for current conservation efforts, and they're used to capitalize um, one of your favorite things, an endowment that will be used so that they can protect this land in perpetuity. And then somewhere along the line in this deal, this these millions of acres of, yes. of beautiful, pristine ocean are preserved for, for posterity. Exactly. So the, so Seychelles is basically saying, okay, we're getting a little bit of our debt transformed from a foreign currency denominated debt into a local currency denominated debt, which helps us. And we're getting funds to be able to pay for preservation. And because we're getting that, we're willing to set aside this really large area. I mean, we're talking an area that's roughly the size of Germany. So 
my understand. Well, for, I have a couple questions. First, Seychelles is, is, is again. It's it's a beautiful island off of Africa that is a wonderful vacation destination. You sometimes see it pop up on Instagram and feel jealous of all of your friends. How apparently they have a much higher per capita income than I realized. How the hell did they even end up in a situation oh. where they were where they're having all these debt problems where they had to essentially you know protect a big part of their marine well, maybe, environment? Well, I mean the point is surely in large part that it was always in their best interest to protect this marine environment anyway, largely because they have such a large well, tourism industry. Yeah, well, yeah, that makes sense to me. But so how? Wh- but why so, did they? Uh, if run you want to say like why did they have so much debt to begin with? Because no. they actually currently have about four hundred million in outstanding debt, which, which for a country of ninety thousand people is quite a lot. Yes, yeah. but it's quite a lot less than they used to have. <laughs> so okay, they got into a lot of trouble and. Why did they get into a lot of trouble? Well, their government for about 15 years was a socialist one-party government. Then, Sounds great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and who, who are known for their fiscal prudence. And so then, even once they went to a multi-party government system, you still had these kind of populist parties um, ruling in the Seychelles. So as a consequence of that, they were spending way more money than they had. And they were also giving all these tax breaks to foreign companies to get them to invest to grow the tourism industry. Interesting. Okay. And so what do countries do when they're they're spending way more money than they have? Well, they have a few options. They could cut back in spending, but they certainly don't want to do that. They could go to a body like the IMF, but then they're going to have to make structural changes. Or they could go to foreign creditors. And if you go to foreign creditors, you're going to have to pay a lot, but they won't make you do anything. They'll be like, populist government, you do you, just keep paying us our coupon, all we want. So that's what they did. They, they issued, so was this you know, bonded debt? These- oh, they issued a euro bond that, I think it was $240 million. It represented almost a third of GDP. Wow. And it was a 9 and an 8th coupon, which is very high. The structure of the bond was bananas it was like it was very short term it was also a bullet bond so they had to pay the entire principal back in one year it was unwise let's say that (laughs) so then in 2008 when obviously many uh, many places were going through a financial crisis they went through a serious financial crisis because obviously tourism declined which had been one of their growing industries and then on top of that they they had a spike in oil prices and they, there was a spike in oil prices that so then they couldn't pay for oil. And then on top of that, there was a spike in food prices. And at this time, they also had a pegged currency, which means that they are pegging the currency to the dollar. So they have to spend their foreign reserves. The reason this is important is because they had a limited amount of foreign currency. They didn't have enough money to pay for imports like food. And service their debt. They got into so at at the time that they went to the IMF and had to restructure their debt, there they had the second greatest debt burden in the world as a percentage of GDP. It was more as a percentage of GDP. It was more than Greece. Was it more than Japan? It was not. That was the number one. <laughs> That's, I, it's just amazing how much trouble a small socialist yep. island paradise yes. can get into if they're not careful. But exactly. But so this is sort of a. But so they do the restructure, yeah. and then this is like the last oh, shoe dropping. Right. But can I also? Uh, sorry, not to interrupt. No, no, but no. Interrupt. This is. This is why I think this is interesting, and it ties back to what we were beginning with, of why I think it's interesting that this new debt for nature swap is not just debt relief. It's They are still paying it back. They're just changing the nature of the debt. Because Seychelles had a tremendous amount of debt relief, because they had a lot of debt with Paris Club countries, and then they also had this, this bond. And it was literally, I think, about 50% of both of those different types of debt was just canceled. Wow. And as a, and as a net present value... They basically like 75% of their overall debt burden was just eliminated. So how, how many emerging market fund managers got fired for buying that bond? I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, if you think of it as only being a $230 million bond, in the grand scheme of sovereign debt, like that's not that much. But I mean, it's a one-year bond and it gets restructured. Like that's not a bond you want to have been Oh, buying. no. That was, I mean, a disaster. Although it's interesting because part of the reason that they were able to get through this not fantastic deal for creditors is because this bond had collective action clauses. So you couldn't have holdouts. Anyway, that's we're, we're that's not a separate. Gonna, we're not gonna <laughs> that's that. a little too wonky. So, but a little less wonky. So I guess coming back to something you said before, Felix, is this just sort of an example of 
a country sort of using their debt situation to do something they really wanted anyway? Since, like you, you mentioned, they the vast majority of their restructuring was finished. They had sort of taken care of most of the problem, it seems. Mm-hmm. So this is almost like a cherry on top, and they get to, I guess, protect their coastline from future drilling by oil companies or something? Yeah. Or what? Yeah, I mean, how... Yeah, so, like, was this just... This, they're doing this just because this presented an opportunity or? Yes. And that's why I said at the beginning that debt for nature swaps are usually more about nature than they are about debt. Okay. Because right now, even though their debt is still high in terms of percentage of GDP, it's it's pretty manageable because of how it was restructured. But now the current government, which has actually been engaging in much more prudent policies, knows that they need to do a few things. One, this is a low lying country which means they are just like at the forefront of dealing with climate change, that they're dealing with rising sea levels. They're dealing with hard, like harsher storms. And so they know that they need to kind of alter their economy a little bit more towards ecotourism and away from fishing, which was kind of degrading the area. Because things like mangrove forests and coral reefs are really important for actually stopping some of the extreme storms or making or mitigating their effects, which are only going to be getting worse. So this is something that the government, I think, definitely does want to do. But you're talking about an economy that has been very focused on fishing. And now you're taking potentially, I think, up to 30 percent of your marine territory and saying you can't fish there. It's it's political permission. But it's I think I think the way to look at it is as a commitment device that the current government is not going to be going out and allowing a bunch of people to drill for oil on one of its pristine atolls. But what they want to be able to do is put a, put in place a structure which basically constrains future governments as well. That mm-hmm. ma- oh, that, ma- that makes a yeah. lot of sense because this is baked into the contract. Right. Exactly. And it's interesting, too, because now you're getting a number of other countries. Um, I think Jamaica and Grenada are both looking at this. Grenada. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So sovereign debt geeks love Grenada, Dominica, all these tiny little countries. <laughs> what did, what did we are we do? are not going to talk about that now. What we, what we are going to do, I have now unilaterally decided, is we're going to have a very quick Slate Plus segment about Tierra del Fuego and Goldman Sachs. Because that is the greatest debt for nature swap of all time. But you'll have to be a Slate Plus subscriber to listen to that one. I was going to ask you if Argentina had ever done something. No, no, this is Chile. Oh, really? This is Chilean Tierra del Fuego. Okay, okay. Well, we'll talk about it. Okay, let's talk about expert networks. I feel like we've talked about these before. Kathy O'Neill was not a fan of Expert Network. No, I think we talked about them in the context of uh, Stevie Cohen. Yes. And so an Expert Network is a company like Gerson Lehman, which will put hedge fund managers and other investors in touch with experts in their respective fields. And that basically allows the investors to get up to speed very quickly on whatever they need to know about whatever industry they want to invest in. And it's all done over the phone, and sometimes these experts can be paid $1,300 an hour for their time. And back in the day, the implicit expectation was that the experts might share some inside information that you can trade on. That was never allowed. But it was expected. Yes, and it's important that these expert networks somewhat developed because of regulatory changes, that you had in the, I think in 2000, the regulation that companies could not release information selectively. They had to release it to all investors at the same time. And this is happening at the same moment where you're getting you know, better technology, better access to information. So markets are becoming more efficient. It's harder for firms to really gain an edge. And so that's part of the reason that these developed. And of course, the big scandal in the world of expert networks, as you say, was with um, Stephen A. Cohen Capital, uh, where one of his employees was using one of these experts um, who had advanced information about a medical trial, and then he traded on that advanced information about the medical trial, which was clearly inside information, and then wound up going to jail. Um, the question, the the interesting thing is that that episode in the long history of expert networks doesn't seem to have done them very much harm and they're now making more money than ever 
they I will say there was definitely a period of time where fewer firms were using them because just of the compliance risk. But now they're seeming to be kind of coming a little bit more into fashion. And we'll talk about this potentially with European firms because of regulatory changes going on. Well, there. so this was what caught our attention this week. This this is this is where MIFID comes yes, in. MIFID, MIFID two. two. Um, Anna, what is MIFID two? So this is a new regulatory regime in Europe, and there are many many regulations that are part of this and many changes. But one of the biggest ones that people talk about is that you can no longer bundle research services in with brokerage fees, by which I mean, if you trade with a firm, normally the trading fees you pay allows you to access the research portals. Now you have to actually pay for their research separately. And the research being what's known in the trade as sell-side research. This is the people who work as analysts at banks. And sell-side research is not completely worthless. But the fact is that if you are going to be paying for research, you are going to look at your options. You're going to say, well, this bank wants me to pay this much money for their research. And much as I am friendly with those guys, it hasn't really helped me with my investment thesis nearly so much as phoning up an expert, which I can do for the same cost. So maybe I should just phone up an expert instead. Right, because sell-side research... (laughs) First of all, there is an inordinate amount of it. Part of my job used to be I worked with our head of research. And so a lot of the research came to me and I had to go through it and figure out what was important. Every morning I had like 300 emails on my phone. The vast majority of it is garbage and it's just not well targeted. So if you're thinking like, look, I'm going to spend $100,000, $150,000, $200,000 on research. Am I going to spend it for research, much of which is going to be completely useless? Or am I going to spend it for something that's much more targeted? Is it like garbage because it's a 20 year like 24 year old who doesn't know his ass from his elbow just like no, sounding off that company it's, or like, it's, it's these big pdf files which just come streaming in every day and honestly you don't even have time to open them half the time let alone find out whether <laughs> yeah, there's there anything important so in there. you start to you start to get a sense of like which analysts kind of matter but yeah most of the other issue is that you always have to be concerned on the buy side of on the sell side, like how unbiased this information also is. I mean, this was also in the late 90s. There were a number of um, controversies around this. But just in general, sell side research, some of it can be useful, but the vast majority of it just simply is not. So if you don't mind me, why is why do they even have this regulation? Why are they why do they care about whether you're charging and, and how and like what, what what was the point of this? Yeah, it's a good question. I, part of it has to do with the idea of trying to really get like the best services for your client, because it could be that one person, your company you're trading with, bank you're trading with, is going to be able to have kind of like best execution for your trade. But is that going to be the same bank that's necessarily going to be the best at covering other Um, specific credits or countries that you're looking at? Probably not. So it could be ultimately better for clients if you separate those things. In other words, if Goldman Sachs will give you the best research, but Deutsche Bank will give you the best execution, what you want to be able to do is get your research from Goldman Sachs and your execution from Deutsche Bank. That didn't really used to be possible when if you were using Deutsche Bank for all of the execution, Goldman Sachs would start getting annoyed at you and say, well, hey, if if you're using all of our research, then you need to give us some of the execution as well. Although the one thing I will say that I find like slightly odd about this is just that I will tell you, like, we had access to every single portal. Like, you got research from everyone. You traded with it. I mean, all of them at some point you had probably done a trade with. But most banks were not, like, shy about giving you access to no, the no, portal. They give you, no, they give you all of your – all of the, the old model was the banks give out their research for free. Yeah. And then every so often they ask you to fill out a survey saying whose research yeah. do you value the most. And then whoever gets – high marks on that survey, they get more trading dollars. Oh, okay. It's called soft dollars. Okay. And that was the and you you wind up giving those banks extra trading dollars, not because they have the best execution, but just because they have the best research. Interesting. Yeah. I still I, it just it seems I like question how much just because of knowing like how when you when you're deciding who you're gonna trade with, I, I don't know. There's a part of me that doesn't know how 
that that actually plays out exactly like that in theory yes so, i guess to me it just like it seems like the eu has this kind of quirky regulation they decided to put down for someone's interest and it's not entirely clear who's and and now that's getting banks to say yeah we should start using these expert networks yeah. again. well it's not the banks. oh not banks sorry that's getting investors Invest, to say yeah. we should start using these expert networks again and that can't possibly lead to any problems could <laughs> yes. it I mean, well, I mean, I like it. I I like the yeah. idea that research is actually going to be done on a sort of shoe leather basis, talking to people who know what they're talking about, rather than on a weird intermediated basis where you're talking to bankers. Because I mean, much as bankers are, I'm sure, terribly smart. Honestly, like if you what you want to do is come up with a smart and and informed investment thesis, it really helps to know the real world and if you can know the real world without leaving your desk just by phoning up a few experts i kind of i'm okay with that i guess it's not that unlike journalism where you can try to write a story by talking to bank analysts or talking to people in the industry yeah, and exactly. your story is probably going to be better if you're not talking to the 24 year old bank analyst completely agree with you but my i find that people were always doing both like if you're if you're looking to invest in a credit, you're not just going to be like, oh, I'm I'm just reading the sell side research from JPM and maybe I'll call up the analyst. You're going to be doing a lot of your own work. And part of that is going to be talking to people in the industry, speaking with management, frankly, often going to the plant, depending right. on the size but, of but, the investment. But how do you speak with the management? A lot of the time you ask the bank analysts to set up a meeting. Uh, well, it depends. I mean, it, Often, it's actually not that hard to get meetings with analysts because they have banking conferences. And part of going to banking conferences is because you get one-on-one -on -one meetings with management of the companies that you're investing in. Right. And, but that's but exactly. Th those conferences are done by the banks. The banks love being yes. the necessary intermediary there. So oh, I, I guess what I keep coming back to in my head is that they say compliance standards are so much better now and we have safeguards that you're not going to get a Stephen Cohen type situation. Why should I believe that. Like, what makes people think I, that I everything even, is so much more in the up I and up now? I don't think that anyone really is saying that. Okay. I mean, I think that in the grand scheme of things, insider trading is mostly a victimless crime. We've had this discussion before. And that if what we are doing is we're getting better execution for, um, you know, millions of investors and... and Every so often, there's a bad apple who might wind up getting prosecuted. I'm okay with that trade-off. I will also say that compliance is significantly stricter than it used to be. I mean, if okay. you're working at a big firm, you know this because you deal with compliance all the time. It's it's. I think people on the outside think that oh, you know, you, people just say that, but it doesn't really happen. Oh no, it, it's and so, so. What does that look like on something like this? How well, does all of these phone calls are recorded? Mm -hmm. You know, um, there's very strict rules against, um, you know, the expert like giving out their private email or phone number or something like that, which is what happened at SAC. It wasn't the the insider information wasn't transferred over the call, but basically, you know, Matthew Martoma, the guy at SAC, wound up getting this guy's private contact information and then they did a little end run around the back and it wasn't even through the expert network they just right. like he just bribed him yeah he befriended and yeah it was, it's him. actually like sheila kohatkar's book on this whole is so good and really goes into why um like how these networks worked and also something that i will say is a concern of mine still which is that if you read the matthew martoma story one of the things that's so sad about it is that he essentially befriended this like elderly doctor in Michigan. Yeah. And that was actually kind of how he got him to give him this information. Yeah, he groomed him. He really did. And this is something that concerns me because I find that a lot of people who like are not in finance are very in sometimes in awe of especially like portfolio managers and people on deal team. And they kind of, you know, they want to be part of that club because it's seen as this like really exclusive club. And so you can say, oh, well, you know, the, the expert knows that there's only so much they can say and they can always hang up on them. But I I just wonder, because if you have guys who, you know, they're smart, they're slick, they're charming, if we're going to continue to just have these same situations over and over. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? 
Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's have a numbers round. Um, I'm, I'm going to do a number which comes by request from Twitter just so that I can get it out there. Um, 50 million is the number of dollars per year that Georgia receives in sales tax on jet fuel. Jordan is sighing. I think I know where this is going. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Georgia was doing a big tax reform, and as part of the tax reform, it was capitulating to um, Delta Airlines, which is one of Georgia's largest employers, and Delta was saying we don't want to pay sales tax on jet fuel. And Georgia was saying, okay, and they were going to stop charging sales tax on jet fuel. But now it seems that poor Delta is going to have to continue to pay its sales tax on jet fuel because the Georgian legislature has stripped out the jet fuel bit of the legislation in retaliation for Delta severing its ties with the National Rifle Association. This is such a stupid story. I, you know... It's like the right outcome for all the wrong reasons, right? <laughs> yes, yes, I completely it's like, agree. Should, Del- should Georgia have just been kowtowing to Delta for no for no good reason? No, absolutely not. Like th- this tax break probably shouldn't have been in there. Should they be punishing them because they decided to stop giving NRA members discounts on flights? No, they probably shouldn't. <laughs> Nothing is good about this yes. story except for the outcome. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Completely oh. agree. Yeah, I just ugh, whatever. Oh. Jordan, do you have a, yeah. a, a less annoying number? My number is 24.5%, which is the fraction of the American workforce that has ever been uh, covered by a non-compete agreement. Uh, that number comes from a recent survey that was commissioned by uh, Alan Kruger, who's a very famous labor economist, and Eric Posner, who is a uh, gadfly and uh, professor, a law professor at UChicago. Um, and that's just kind of a, I mean crazy fucking number like i who who were they serving and how did they come up with it i mean it's it's people across the education spectrum everyone yeah i mean but but they were serving the employees they they were surveying the employees yeah people workers yeah it's just like americans the vast majority of americans who have no idea whether they covered by a non-compete agreement or not i mean maybe they are aware of it i mean that's the thing like i think this is a sleeper issue that has been slowly but surely gaining traction and part and partly it's because company like we all remember the famous jimmy john's incident where it turned out their sandwich like their sandwich artists were covered by (laughs) non-competes that would keep them from going over to subway or whoever there has been this um you know there's been this non-compete creep where it's they are reaching further and further into low skill industries and people are bumping up against them so especially you know sometimes they don't know about them when they sign up for the job but when they try to leave it comes up uh so i just i i i've said this before i think last time we had a conversation about it on the show was probably years ago but i think non-compete should just be banned i think there is no they are banned in california they are non-enforceable in california they enforceable to various degrees in different states new york has some limitations on them but a lot of states just give employers free reign on them the you know the there is almost no economic argument for them it is they are they are a nothing but a a drain on the economy yeah, and, anti-competitive uh, they're anti-competitive yeah. they they hurt innovation mm-hmm. they keep poor people poor it seems or help keep poor people poor they they disempower workers and it's just this is something that i think more politicians need to seize on because it's just it's it's there and obviously a lot more people are being affected by it than anyone has had any realization of Okay, well, my number is uh, $340 billion. This number actually is from an email that one of our listeners sent um, about EM debt issuance. So that's the amount of EM sovereign debt that has been issued between January 2017 and January 2018. 
So this is okay. So first of all, what does EM mean? What, oh, I'm sorry, emerging markets. But, okay. So and then second of all, what does emerging markets mean? So emerging markets is. I laugh because what is actually classified as emerging markets is often like, well, what does the index tell us are emerging markets? There's not really a fantastic, especially if you're talking about the difference between like an emerging market or frontier market. So frontier is going to be where you're getting riskier. You're going to have smaller economies. But, but in this in this context, the $340 billion is a bunch of debt from countries like Nigeria, Brazil, mm-hmm. Russia. Um, Tajikistan. I I can't believe Tajikistan has many billions of dollars in <laughs> new debt issuance, but maybe I'm wrong. No, they actually had a big. Um, they had a big. Uh, bond. So three hundred and forty billion. Times is, a whole thing I'm, about I'm Tajikistan to... ex- exclusively. They were just like <laughs> things are messed up if Tajikistan, Tajikistan is able yes. to issue this kind of debt. So yes. put this in context for us: is is this much bigger than it has been in the past? This is certainly high, and it's also the the yields that these are being issued at are still relatively high in comparison to what you're getting in most other fixed income instruments. But if you're thinking about, you know, getting a Nigerian bond and only getting, you know, a 7% interest, like that doesn't seem to fully compensate you. And I think that's where people are questioning if we're having people moving further and further out on the risk curve in this search for yield. And because also people just have a lot of capital to put to work, they want to buy things. And because there's so much appetite, that's actually part of the story, too, is that a lot of these debt issuances are being like 10 times oversubscribed, which means that the the yield that they have to issue at can become lower because there's so much appetite. So a whole bunch of capital is chasing yield and there's a credit bubble or something. What could possibly go wrong? Um Maybe the entire emerging markets world will end up like the Seychelles, and then we will have a natural paradise. That's like a really uh, that uh, that that's problematic, Felix. <laughs> that's, that is a problematic take. But we will talk about we, that another time. We will. Let's yes. okay. So hang, stick with us if you're a Slate Plus member, and we will talk about Tierra del Fuego. Otherwise, thank you for listening to us this week. Uh, send in your questions. For Jordan Weissman, the email address, as ever, is slatemoney at slate.com. Oh, and and the phone number is, Dan? 929-266-8195. Listen to Lexicon Valley, which comes out every other Tuesday. That's John McWhorter, who knows a lot about words, and it really is a fabulous, discursive, wonderful way to get your mind out of the news and into just lovely world the world the lovely world of lexicography and words and don't take my word for it apparently some guy called stephen colbert likes it too um many thanks to dan schrader who produced and many thanks to jordan weisman for putting himself in the firing line make sure you ask him some tough questions yeah we'll see what comes to this we'll talk to you next week on fleet money This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.